Are you looking for a podcast that your whole family can enjoy that asks the deep philosophical questions like, do trees fart? If you are, then you'll love Tumble, a science podcast for kids. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Join us as we explore stories of science discovery, from butts to animals, dinosaurs, astronomy, and everything in between. You'll love these stories, and you'll learn something new. Find and follow Tumble Science Podcast for Kids wherever you get your podcasts, or at sciencepodcastforkids.com. Soundsington Media! Hey, Brian, what do you think about when you look up and see the moon? Hmm, I guess I think about how everyone around the world can see the moon. It's kind of one of those cool, unifying things. Yeah. What about you? Yeah, I think a lot about different traditions that have happened over the years um, based around the moon, you know? And then I think about how people have been looking up at it for so long and, and wondering what they thought it was, you know? Oh, yeah. Lots of different stories about what's on the moon or what the moon was made of. Mm-hmm. Well, hey, why do you ask all this? Well, I was just thinking about the fact that humans first set foot on the moon in 1969 as part of NASA's Apollo program. And you know what? We haven't been back in almost 50 years. We've focused most of our human spaceflight efforts around low Earth orbit, sometimes called LEO, which basically refers to an orbit close to our home planet here on Earth. Over the years, low Earth orbit has been home to missions like Skylab, the Space Shuttle, the International Space Station, and lots of satellites. But thanks to NASA's Artemis mission... Artemis was Apollo's twin sister in Greek mythology, by the way. ...we'll soon be returning humans to the lunar surface, and eventually, Mars! Today on Reach, we're talking about the moon and the plan to go back. I'm Brian Holden. And I'm Meredith Stepien, and this is Reach, a space podcast for kids. On today's episode of Reach, we'll be focusing on our nearest orbiting body, the moon. But before we dig into upcoming lunar landings, earlier this week, we had the chance to catch up with our closest neighboring star, Proxima Centauri, in a new edition of Did You Know? Hi, Hi Proxima, Proxima Centauri. Hey, hey, hey. Thanks so much for having me, Brian and Meredith. What is going on? Did you know that other than the sun, I am the closest star to Earth, about 4.24 light years away from you to be exact? Wow, that's amazing. I am a red dwarf star with a mass about one-eighth of the sun and a density approximately 33 times that of the sun. I was discovered in 1915 by Robert Enos while he was director of the Union Observatory in Johannesburg. I love Johannesburg. That's great to know. I have two confirmed orbiting exoplanets, Proxima Centauri b and Proxima Centauri c. And Proxima Centauri b may even have oceans on its surface much like Earth. So, what are your favorite things about being a star? My favorite thing about being a star is that even though I'm the closest star to the sun and can feel the energy and love you're sending me, I still have my privacy. You see, you can't see me with the human eye. Now, if you get the right telescope, you can still check on me and make sure I'm still out here doing what us stars do, which is mingling with other stars and sending positive vibes all the way over to Earth. 
Thanks so much for joining us this week on Did You Know? See you later, folks. And thanks for having me, Brian and Meredith. It's been a pleasure. Now, if you'll excuse me, I gotta get back to being a star. See you later, Proxima Centauri. Gotta love those positive vibes from Proxima Centauri. I like how Proxima Centauri carves out time on the calendar to focus on just being a star. You know, Brian, next time we're skywatching, let's keep an eye out for Proxima Centauri. You know, give a nearby galactic wave. I'll make a big sign that says, hello, Proxima Centauri. Speaking of skywatching, one of the main attractions in the night sky is our closest neighbor in space, the moon. We have so much to learn about the moon, and before we sit down with a real-life engineer working on NASA's Artemis mission, we wanted to hear what our listeners would do if they were going to the moon. That's right. We asked our Reach listener community, if you could fly to the moon, what's the first thing you'd do when you landed? Hi, my name is Blythe, and if I were to land on the moon, the first thing I would do is call my friends, and then while we were on the phone, we could look for creatures together. My name is Ashley, and the first thing I would do when I landed on the moon is explore. Because, I mean, there's a lot of things to explore, like trying to find alien life sources or just trying to find random things on the moon. I feel like that would be really fun, and that's the first thing I would do if I went on the moon. Those were great answers. Yeah, I think I would definitely call my friends as well. Be like, I'm on the moon, bragging rights. Yeah, I'd be like, Mom, Dad, I'm on the moon. So before we go to the moon, we need to learn about what it's going to take to get there and about different aspects of the mission and plan. We had the pleasure of reconnecting with Michael Staub, Fault Management and System Autonomy Principal Engineer for Lunar Missions at Northrop Grumman. Michael told us all about NASA's Artemis mission, the Lunar Lander and Lunar Gateway programs, and why going to the moon and Mars takes the effort of people from all around the world. Michael, welcome back to Reach. It's an honor to speak with you again. For anyone who is just joining our show, could you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah, hi folks, uh, my name is uh, Michael Staub. I'm a uh, practicing engineer. I'm currently a fault management and system autonomy engineer for lunar missions at Northrop Grumman, uh, supporting pretty much all sorts of lunar missions that uh, NASA is currently undertaking, uh, gateway, uh, human landing system, uh, logistics supply, relay comms. There, there's a lot of really exciting things going on around lunar space, uh, hopefully for the next couple of decades. So it's, that's keeping us really busy, and uh, I absolutely love it, which is uh, why I'm in this film. Yes, that is excellent. Well, you did a, an episode with us last season, which some of our listeners may remember, and at that time we were talking a lot about NASA's Mars Perseverance mission, which was about to launch, and now... It's landed on Mars, and everything seems to be going well. Because today, we're talking about something that we definitely want to devote all of our time to, because it is so cool. We're talking about NASA's Artemis program, and basically returning to the moon. So, first of all, can you tell us just what is Artemis? Well, I like to think of Artemis as the modern Apollo program. Artemis is NASA and really sort of the world's dedication to not just returning to the moon, but returning there to stay permanently. There's lots of talks about extending programs, doing follow-ons. Potentially, we could be creating something that's like the International Space Station, which is just a a permanent decades-long commitment uh, for NASA to work and operate uh, between 
crewed missions and robotics and commercial partners to basically stay at the moon. Wow, that is so cool. Moonbase. We're curious about the Lunar Lander and Lunar Gateway programs. So is the Lunar Lander similar to the lander from the Apollo program from the 1960s? Well, it is, it is similar in its, in its design. It's similar in its, its concept. So the idea is you have the astronauts that uh, live and operate in uh, upper stage, we call them maybe an ascent element or whatever it is, and uh, the bottom piece is the descent element. So just like on the lunar module, you have a propulsion system with some legs, and that's what you land on the surface with. And then you have the crew compartment that also has a propulsion system that the uh, that the astronauts are able to either uh, abort with if there's a problem during landing, or it's what they use basically to fly back up in orbit to rendezvous with, with their capsule, which in this case is the Orion capsule. And that's what they use to then transfer uh, between the lunar surface and the Orion capsule. There's currently three proposals being being worked right now by separate commercial companies. Uh, SpaceX is developing a, a lunar variant of their Starship program that has been receiving a lot of attention in the news and has been doing a lot of uh, full-scale flight demonstrations down in, in South Texas. The Blue Origin national team concept looks more like a traditional lunar lander. It has an ascent element and a, a descent element, and it also has what we call a transfer element. Um, that's because the orbit that the their HLS concept is going into requires a lot more energy. So it needs um, it needs its own dedicated propulsion system to get it to the the gateway, which we're going to talk about in a second, and down to the lunar surface. And then you have Dynetics, which is uh, a collaboration between Dynetics and Sierra Nevada Corporation and Maxar that is proposing what looks sort of like a lunar habitat, but it is actually a lunar lander. So it's uh, it's something that looks more like uh, maybe an ISS module that has a propulsion system on it that can go uh, down to the surface and back up into orbit. So those are the three proposals that are currently being studied and funded by NASA. And uh, here in at the end of the month of April, uh, April 30th, we've been told that NASA is going to down-select one or two proposals to carry to what we call preliminary design review. So that will basically uh, assess uh, the maturity of the designs to a point that we can begin to start doing more detailed engineering design and begin to start actually getting parts so that we can go fly. The timeline is still the end of 2024. I would probably guess that we will find out what the new timeline is when the awards are finally announced at the end of the month. It, it definitely feels like with the new administration, uh, there is still that very strong support for the Artemis program. However, maybe the timeline is does not have as much support. So the timeline probably may get pushed a little bit, but um, within this decade, uh, we're going to, as NASA has been saying for many years, we're gonna land uh, the first woman and the next man on the surface of the moon sometime in this decade. And it's gonna be a, uh, it's gonna be an HLS system that is designed uh, here in the United States. Wow, that is very, very cool. So with the lander program, there are currently three plans being considered. Soon that's going to be whittled down a little bit, and then you're going to keep doing testing until one of those seems like the best option. Is that right? Yeah, we're going to, whoever is selected, whether it's one or two, um, 
we're going to continue doing the work we've been doing. We're going to continue doing our engineering, our analysis, um, our, our testing programs. And eventually, uh, NASA will whittle down to a single concept, and that's the one that will be funded for manufacturing and then uh, for flight demonstrations all the way up until when we do the actual first uh, crewed landing. Now, there's a second part to this, which is the Lunar Gateway Program. Can you tell us more about that? The, the Lunar Gateway Program is one of the pieces that I currently support. The Gateway, you can envision it as sort of a international space station in cis lunar space. So it is a it is a fully functioning space station that will um, exist in what we call a near rectilinear halo orbit or NRHO. And it's basically going to sit there and that's going to be the staging point for crews going to and from the surface of the moon for long-term missions. So the gateway is going to have all the amenities you would expect at the space station. It's got the it's a spacecraft. It's got its own power system. It's got its own propulsion system. The element that I work on called uh, HALO, the Habitation and Logistics Outpost, is going to be sort of like a small studio apartment for the astronauts to live and work in while they're, while they're on uh, the gateway. But the gateway is, is envisioned to be sort of this uh, incremental build. So the first pieces that are going to go up is, is what we call the power and propulsion element or the PPE. That's being built by Maxar, and that's basically our, our power station. And then the second piece that's flying along with that is, is the halo, so, the, so the, that small studio apartment. And those pieces are going to launch together, and those are going to be the first two elements of the gateway. Now, there are other pieces that we're going to add to the gateway incrementally over time. And as I said before, Artemis is really an international partnership. It's really a, an international investment and commitment by, by a lot of nations to conduct uh, permanent cis lunar space operations. So we have another element called the International Habitat that's being built by the European Space Agency. Um, we have uh, the Canadian Space Agency has committed to setting up the next generation of the robotic arms that they're so well known for, the robotic arm that was on the uh, the space shuttle, and then uh, the Canada Art Arm 2 that's uh, been working on the International Space Station for many years. They're giving us now an upgraded arm that's going to fly and it's going to work on board the gateway. Artemis is meant to be sort of a gateway, as the name implies, a stepping stone to eventually going out into deeper parts of the solar system to send humans eventually to live and work on the surface of Mars. So it's it's basically this space station and it's designed where we can add more modules to it so we can make it bigger than its baseline to be, which is that power propulsion element, the halo, and then the IHAM. There's possibility to add more uh, elements or more pieces to it to make it bigger and make it a little more roomier to just add some capability to it. It's really exciting to see kind of what gateway could become, but we have to start with something. It's those first two elements, the PPE and the halo. There's a lot of there's a, there's a lot of capabilities that the gateway will be able to support, all meant to create this sort of permanent, you know, outpost in cislunar space to to do long term long term research, long term study out in the moon's environment. That is so exciting. So. The Gateway's got a few different components to it. And like you said, it is an international effort. So people all around the world 
are working on that. And this is a theme that has come up actually a few times throughout our uh, show, particularly this season. But it's so, I think, incredible and, and maybe something that maybe it says something about, you know, humans working together that all these decades later now space exploration is defined not as a competition between these different countries or uh, agencies on Earth, but as a collaboration. I think that's really neat. What is it like to work with thousands of people around the world on these efforts to return to the moon? We, we talk about all the time with space exploration that it, it really brings out the very best in people. When we, when we put our efforts towards doing something that's really challenging, we, we really bring out the very best in ourselves. It's great to see this, this international commitment to to sort of doing these these very these very challenging space missions. Mm-hmm. Going to Mars is one of those where it has to be an international part. It can't simply be the United States that does it. It's just it's it's expensive, it's it's challenging. It's better when we bring in our, our friends and our allies to come and help with us. And ESA wants to be more involved with with international programs. The Canadian Space Agency wants to get more involved. Even last year we saw the United Arab Emirates launch its first astronaut to the International Space Station. They just put their first uh, orbiter around Mars on their very mm-hmm. first attempt. It's, it's a great way to bridge gaps with countries that you wouldn't normally work with that want to get some skin in the game, but also bring a lot of great knowledge and, and contribution and excitement to the program. When we go to Mars, we're going to have to work with other nations. That's just how it is. Our crews are going to be international in, in makeup and you know, we're going to be building parts built by somebody else in another country that speaks a different language that's halfway around the world. And you hardly ever talk to them because, you know, of time differences and things like that. So it's a great way to learn how to not only do this work with international partners, but it's also a great way to just collaborate with other people. The idea of going to the moon is a source of inspiration for many people. But I want to know about you. What are you most excited about when you think of humans going back to the moon? I, I think it's I think it's great that we're finally getting out of low Earth orbit again. So it's 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 really exciting to see us as a as a, a world get excited and and get motivated behind the idea of returning to the moon because the moon was always supposed to be a stepping stone to the next the next big journey, which was going to Mars and pushing ourselves further out in the solar system. It's great to see that we have political support behind it because that's the really the big thing you got to have the political support to do it mm. and we've gotten that for the last two administrations so we're going to keep pushing that um i think it it's from from another perspective seeing the first woman to walk on the moon is going to be game-changing for a lot of little girls who yeah. were always told that being an astronaut was a man's job mm-hmm. not a woman's job when you see that representation, you see a woman walking on the surface of the moon, suddenly that world is, is open to them again. Um, the last astronaut class particularly was very diverse and showing and demonstrating that there is diversity in not only astronaut program, but you know that being able to return to the moon is something that is a something for all of humanity, not just men, but also for women. It's going to be great to see that diversity again, but also that push that we are returning to the moon and we're here to stay. And this is just a gateway for bigger and better things. We're eventually going to, going to go to Mars. 
don't know when it's going to be. Mm-hmm. It may not be in my lifetime, but we're going to eventually get there. It definitely helps that there is a, a huge push on the commercial side where advances in rocket technology are really starting to catch up. We're maybe doing some of these, these long-term missions and you only have to take a month to travel from Earth to Mars is kind of a big deal. Oh, wow. I didn't realize yeah. that, that maybe that short, that short of timeline was even a possibility. You know, there's been a lot of research done on high energy propulsion, rocket propulsion techniques over, over the last several decades that is demonstrating that, you know, we can make these, these journeys much shorter. There's, there's some time you have to wait for the technology to catch up. Eventually, it's going to catch up to us. So going back to the moon now, spending a couple decades there, it's going to give us the time to figure out all those other little technologies we can't figure out. So by the time we're ready to go to Mars... That technology is there, the, the will is there, the motivation is there, and it's just the first, it's the first step out into the cosmos for humanity. Mm-hmm. And I think it's pretty neat to be, uh, my wife and I both work on, work on these programs. It's really neat to know that we're involved in kind of a second space renaissance. Yes. Again, we're going back to the moon and uh, we're going there to stay hopefully permanently this time. And maybe our kids will be the ones that design the spacecraft that go to take people to Mars. Maybe they'll be the ones that step on the surface of Mars. Wow. Who knows? But it's, but it's great that once again, we are committed. We're dedicated to going back to the moon, not just for some trips and to plant some flags and to prove that we can do it, but that this time we're here to go for more than just national pride. We're here to go uh, for science and we're here to go to demonstrate that, you know, humanity has grown, it's evolved, and we can finally push ourselves out further and further in the solar system. Well, I can't wait to see how all of this uh, comes out. Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. It has been a pleasure to have you back on Reach. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks so much for joining us on Reach, Michael. Ooh, I can't wait for there to be a moon base. So cool. We've talked about the future of landing on the moon, and now we're going to take a look back at the scientific design and testing process used to figure out the first lunar landing. In this week's at-home activity brought to us by the Cosmosphere Camps, you'll learn all about the basic engineering design process used to create prototypical lunar landers. And then you'll get to build your own lunar lander, which we can confirm will involve marshmallows. Yum. The engineering design process involves asking questions, using your imagination, making plans, and then creating, experimenting, and finding ways to improve what you're doing. Visit our show notes to follow along with a complete description of how you can make your own lunar lander. Here's how it works. Step one in the engineering design process is to ask a question. In this case, the question is, how do we land six astronauts, which are represented by marshmallows, safely on the moon? Step two is to imagine. Gather your materials. You'll need small marshmallows and a styrofoam cup. Brainstorm about other materials you could use, such as masking tape, cardboard, straws, and note cards. Step three is to plan. Sketch out a picture of your lunar lander. Label all the major components and what you'll use to build them. Step four is to create. Build your lunar lander according to your very own plans. Step five is to experiment. 
Stand up and drop the lunar lander with the marshmallows inside the styrofoam cup. Note what happens when it lands. Ask an adult to drop the lunar lander from a taller height, like a step stool or a small ladder. Step six is to improve. Work with your friends to brainstorm ways to improve the lunar lander. What is causing it to tip over? Why are the marshmallows bouncing out of the cup? And finally, you'll want to repeat. Keep experimenting and improving until you are satisfied with your lunar lander. Our thanks to the Cosmosphere for sharing this very cool activity. And once you build your own lunar lander, which does involve marshmallows... Brian's really into marshmallows. I am. Be sure to send us a photo. Just share on social media and tag us at Reach the Podcast. Space travel gets easier with each passing year, but it's still fun to think about what the future holds. Here with an audio essay about a proposed planet-to-space transportation system is our own Joalda Morancy. Take it away, Joalda. You've probably ridden an elevator before, using it to get to another floor or part of a building with ease. Well, how about a space elevator? I'm sure you can't say that you've ridden one of those before. You might be even wondering what a space elevator is and what it means. Well, think about it like this. What if I told you that we could build a structure that could take us straight to outer space without the need for a plane or rocket? Let me explain. A space elevator is a form of transportation that gets something from the surface of a celestial body to outer space. The idea was pioneered in 1895 by a Russian rocket scientist named Konstantin Solkovsky, also known as the father of rocket science. The idea was published in his books, Speculations About Earth and Sky and on Vesta, which consisted of the multiple futuristic ideas he wrote about at this time. Solkovsky had been inspired by the Eiffel Tower and thought of a larger and longer tower that could reach space. A space elevator would be placed at our equator and would be super long, reaching over 22,000 miles above the Earth's surface. There would be four major parts to the space elevator. Let's start from the ground and then go up. First would be what we would call the anchor station or what would hold the entire elevator structure down. It would be a good idea to place the station in the ocean to move it if need be, like if there were natural processes such as storms, winds, and waves. This anchor station was thought to be the future workplace for around 100 scientists and engineers. The next part of the space elevator would be the tether cable, which would attach to the anchor station and counterweight, which we will discuss soon. I'll go ahead and say that this is probably the most important part of the space elevator because you need to attach everything together. The cable has to be strong enough to hold all the components together and withstand the harsh environment of outer space, including tiny meteorites, space debris, and more. After this, we would have what's called a climber, which will carry stuff from the anchor station to the counterweight above. Think of this as being inside an actual elevator, bringing you and your friends up a building. Being able to easily carry items from Earth's surface to outer space like this could potentially help save us lots of money. Lastly, we have the counterweight, and this is the object on the other side of the tether cable. There have been numerous ideas for what the counterweight could be, but the two most popular options are an asteroid or a space station. I personally think a space station would be super cool because it could open the opportunity for people to work in space and many other cool things. Even though we might not see one anytime soon, space elevators are a fun idea to think about. 
Many people do research on them to this day, with entire organizations being dedicated to them. I encourage you to go look at some fun images of space elevators on Earth and even pictures of space elevators on other planets and moons. They're all super cool. See you all later. Wow, thanks so much, Jawalda. Well, that almost wraps up another season here on Reach, a space podcast for kids. You know, Brian, we're always asking our guests about what inspires them most about our space and science. But I'm curious, what are you most excited about when you think about what's ahead for exploring our galaxy? Hmm, I'm excited about, you know, if we ever detect any sort of life on another planetary body, what that might look like. Oh, yes, that's such a good one. I'm thinking about the mysteries of dark matter and black holes and maybe solving some of those mysteries. Oh, yeah. There's so much at work in our universe that we don't know about. Mm-hmm. Well, stay tuned for new installments of Reaching Out Minisodes and fun surprises throughout the summer. And while we gear up for an interstellar season three, we'd love to hear from you. That's right. You got a question about space? Get your parents' permission and give us a call at 312-248-3402. Leave us a message with your first name, where you're from, and your question for a chance to be featured in an upcoming episode. We can also accept your questions via email. Just send us your first name, where you're from, and what question you'd like answered to reachthepodcast at gmail.com. As always, we want to acknowledge that not everyone has access to computers or the internet. And if you're not able to get online, many local libraries offer publicly available internet access. Thanks for joining us for Reach, a space podcast for kids. We're your hosts, Brian Holden. And Meredith Stepien. This episode of Reach was written by Sandy Marshall with Nate DeFort, Meredith Stepien, Brian Holden, and Jawalda Morancy. Reach is produced by Nate DeFort and Sandy Marshall, who's a solar system ambassador for NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and edited by Nate DeFort. This show is the result of the efforts of so many collaborators across the world, and we want to say thank you for helping to make Reach a success. From our colleagues and partners at leading scientific institutions across North America, to our many friends who lend their talents to our Did You Know segments, we can't say thank you enough. Our incredible theme song and additional music was composed by uber-talented Jesse Case. And our fantastic logo was created by the great Stephen Lyons. A big reach thank you to Michael Staub, Fault Management and System Autonomy Principal Engineer for Lunar Missions at Northrop Grumman, for joining us on the show again. You can follow Michael online at Astro Staub, and you can learn more about NASA's Artemis program and humanity's return to the moon by visiting nasa.gov slash Artemis program or on social media via at NASA Artemis. Proxima Centauri was voiced by the incredible Lamorne Morris, who you know from New Girl, Hulu's Woke, and the Q-Code action comedy series Unwanted. Follow Lamorne on Twitter at Lamorne Morris. Thanks, Lamorne. And a very special thanks to Mimi Meredith, Michelle McCartney, Joanna Strecker, and Jim Remar at the Cosmosphere International Science Center and Space Museum for sharing the Build a Better Lander activity from the Cosmosphere Camps. To learn more about Cosmosphere Camps, visit Cosmo.org or follow them on Twitter via KS Cosmosphere. And as always, a big thanks to the REACH learning community. Way to go, Blythe and Ashley. Those were some great answers. And thanks to Kay Ferrari at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. 
and our friends at NASA Space Place. Hey Brian, unrelated fun fact. Did you know that Venus is the hottest planet in our solar system? Really? So if we go, we should bring an air conditioner? Well, I think that the air conditioners would melt, honestly. Okay, so like a t-shirt then? No, it's, it's very hot. Too hot. Got it. Super hot. If you're enjoying Reach, be sure to tell your friends and leave us a rating and review in your podcast player of choice. Or share an episode on social media. And if you'd like to find us online, visit at Reach the Podcast on Twitter and Instagram or on our website at reachthepodcast.com. Reach is a production of Soundsington Media, committed to making quality programming for young audiences and the young at heart. For more information on our shows and the people behind them, go to soundsingtonmedia.com. We've all been there. You're standing in a museum, staring at a painting, and all you can think is, I don't get it. To me, knowing the story behind an artwork is a huge part of knowing how to look at it. I'm Amanda, the host of the Art of History podcast, where we view history through the lens of some really great works of art. Each episode, we dive deep into the bigger picture behind some familiar and maybe not so familiar pieces. Check out Art of History now wherever you get your podcasts.